I will be reading from 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater, greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. This is actually the second part of the sermon which we began last Lord's Day. Those who are catching only the second part, I certainly would encourage you to to get a tape and listen to the first part to fill in some of the gaps. A certain nobleman of Scotland, John of Kenmure, a professing Christian, was visited both by a young pastor by the name of Samuel Rutherford and by the Bishop of Galloway as he drew near to death in September of 1634. This nobleman's conscience was pricked as he drew near to eternity. He was gripped with fears and assurance of his salvation seemed to flee from him. The bishop simply ignored this nobleman's accusing conscience by commending to him his good deeds and his faithful civil service. However, Pastor Rutherford began some serious soul surgery and began inquiring as to the reason for his accusing conscience. Rutherford learned that this nobleman had refused to speak on behalf of the cause of Christ the previous year in Parliament, when matters related to the detestable articles of Perth were addressed in Parliament, those articles which imposed upon the Church of Scotland various human innovations into the Church and into its worship. And John of Kenmure sat silently and did not speak forth his heart. The nobleman believed he had deeply wounded the cause of Christ And so he had. And he had tried to ignore his accusing conscience for the past year. But now, as he drew near to the very gates of death, his conscience would not let him go. Was the faithful pastor supposed to dismiss the internal witness of this man's conscience and simply assure him of his salvation? Was that his duty and responsibility? To the contrary, Rutherford ignored not his accusing conscience, but rather understood that in order for this man to truly enjoy assurance of his salvation, his accusing conscience must be satisfied. 
And so Rutherford brought this nobleman to bow before Christ and humbly to acknowledge that he had shamefully sinned against Christ. But as Peter shamefully denied Christ and yet was forgiven, so he too would be forgiven if he earnestly repented of his sin. Rutherford understood that the accusing conscience was there so as to lead this nobleman to the mercy seat of Christ and not so as to leave him in his misery. In writing of this incident many years later, Rutherford warns, and I quote, Remember therefore that conscience is placed in the soul as God's own deputy and God's notary. There is nothing that passes in our life, good or evil, which conscience notes not down with an indelible character. It keeps a daily diary of everything that occurs in the whole course of our life. And then conscience is as a thousand witnesses. It's an eyewitness bringing testimony from the authentic registers and records of the court of conscience. Blessed is the man who follows the injunctions, dictates, prohibitions, and determinations of a good and right informed conscience and hearkens to all the incitements thereof. Oh, that every man would remember how dangerous a thing it is to resist the checks of conscience. For in so doing, we fight not only against our own light, but against the light of the Holy Spirit and grow to such a drunkenness and hardening and sin that no admonition is able to forewarn us. Neither can any punishment work upon us when once we have suffered ourselves to be hardened by degrees. Last Lord's Day, dear ones, we began our consideration of the conscience and its relationship to assurance of salvation from the text here in 1 John chapter 3. Today we shall continue that theme and by God's grace finish. My first main point would simply be to review very, very briefly a few items. First, by way of review, the Apostle John, as you recall, writes to Christians in, in Asia in order to defend the truth against the heresy of Gnosticism. Whereas Gnosticism looked to its own mystical experiences as evidence for, for assurance of salvation, John the Apostle directs believers to a certain and infallible assurance of faith that looks, first of all, to the objective standard of God's promises. For example, in 1 John 5.1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Promise. Look to Jesus Christ. Believe that He is the Christ. And so you shall be born of God. The objective promises of God Based upon the character of God, God cannot lie. The first certain and infallible evidence of our assurance. Second, 
We are to look to the evidence of God's work of grace in our lives expressed by our love for a holy life, our love for the brethren, and our love for the truth. We are to look and examine ourselves to see whether we love these three things and whether by God's grace we are seeking to do these three things. You see, this, is, this particular evidence is like fruit that comes from a vine or from a branch that is, that is united to a vine. It is the evidence that that branch is in the vine, that it brings forth fruit. And so, John says, look to the objective test of whether you love a holy life, you love the brethren, and you love the truth. And thirdly, John exhorts us to look to the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And we will briefly touch on this at the conclusion of the sermon today in 1 John 3.24. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Secondly, by way of review, I would note that as Christians, we must never confuse the ground of salvation with the ground of the assurance of our salvation. The ground of our salvation is only and always the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that can never change. We are not declared righteous, dear ones, because of anything that we can do for the very best that we can offer to God are still filthy rags in and of themselves. We are only declared righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. However, the grounds of our assurance of salvation, that is, that which causes us to know with certainty that we are justified, are these three that we have just mentioned, the promises of God, the evidence of God's work of grace in our lives, and the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. Thus, let us never, ever confuse the cause of our salvation, the grounds of our salvation, with the evidence or fruit of our salvation. And thirdly, by way of review, As we consider the text before us, last Lord's Day, we noted that John, in chapter 3, verse 19, is making a transition from a very specific test of assurance, namely, that those will know that they have passed from death into life if they love the brethren. He's moving from that test of love for the brethren to the matter of the conscience, and how the conscience relates to assurance of salvation. You see, dear ones, John notes that since we love the brethren in deed and truth, we shall know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before God. But what if our heart or our conscience shall in fact accuse us? What are we to do? 
What if our conscience accuses us of sin thereafter? After we are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we no longer Christians? God forbid. The accusing heart, dear ones, does not mean that the Christian who evidences love for the brethren and all the other evidences mentioned in this letter as well is not a Christian. But does that mean we should then simply ignore our accusing conscience since its accusations don't mean that we're not Christians? Should we simply ignore it, dismiss it, turn a deaf ear to it? Again, we say, God forbid. For the conscience is given to us by God as his delegated ambassador which bears witness to his moral law when it is rightly instructed by God's truth. Beloved, remember, the conscience is neither an infallible Pope, for God alone is Lord of the conscience, nor is it a perpetual false witness, for the work of the law is written upon the conscience of man. And even more so, written upon the heart of a Christian who has been regenerated by the Spirit of God. Second main point then. Let us consider the accusing conscience and assurance. We began here last Lord's Day. I have some other comments to make. That's found in verse 20, chapter 3, verse 20, where John says, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. There are really two interpretations of this verse that are expounded in various commentaries as you research this passage. The first interpretation is this, that John is declaring that if the conscience of a believer falsely condemns him as not being a Christian, he need not believe it because God is greater than his conscience. And since God knows all things, therefore, we can know that we are the child of God because God is greater than our conscience. Well, this is the view you will usually find propounded by recent expositors. The second interpretation of this passage is this, that John is declaring that if the conscience of a Christian is rightly accused for any sin in his life, for example, not loving the brethren in deed and truth, which is the immediately preceding context, then that Christian should listen to his conscience, repent of his sin, and seek God's forgiveness because God is greater than his ambassador, which he sins on his behalf. And if the ambassador accuses us of sin, how much more God accuses us of sin? Because the conscience is limited in knowledge. But God is greater. He is the Lord of the conscience and knows all things. And this is the view 
that was espoused by the Reformed divines. Needless to say, I'm going to be giving to you the second view. I believe there are sound exegetical reasons as well, which we are going to consider right now for seeing the passage and the context in that light. I might say, though, before proceeding to look at those reasons, I would say that that first view that I mentioned is correct as to the truth that it conveys. That is, that we need not believe a conscience that falsely places us under the condemning wrath of God if we are justified by God. That is a truth. It's taught in Romans chapter 8. But that is not what John is teaching here in 1 John chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Why do I say that? Well, let me give you two main reasons. <clears throat> First of all, because when John raises the hypothetical situation which he assumes will occur in the life of every Christian, that hypothetical, that conditional sentence that begins this way, for if our heart condemns us, you see, that is a conditional if. It is a hypothetical situation that John assumes will arise in the life of a Christian. Notice he does not say, if their heart condemns them, he includes himself. If our heart condemns us. You see, the very reason he gives for our accusing conscience in this verse is that God is greater than our conscience. John is not saying that God at this point is saying something different from what our conscience says. Our conscience says something wrong, but God says something right. That's not what John is teaching here. To the contrary, John, in effect, is actually declaring, for if our conscience accuses us of sin as it will, should we listen to it? Why should we listen to it? Because God is greater than our conscience and He knows all things. You see, the authorized version, King James Version, in its translation omits a very important word. Very small, but omits a very important word before the word God. Where it says, for if our heart condemns us, it goes on to say, God is greater than our heart. There's a word missing before God. It's not translated. It's left untranslated. And it's the word because. Because God is greater than our conscience. 
Whenever the word because, which in Greek is the word hati, whenever the word because is used, it is giving a reason why something is true. Thus, the reason why our hearts accuse us of sin is because God is greater than our conscience. And He knows all things. <clears throat> Before we move on to the second point, just a, an added Note here, most conditional sentences begin with if, and then you have a then. If this is true, then this. You notice in this particular verse, there is no explicit then. There is, however, an implicit then. And that implicit then is supplied from the following verse. Because the following verse, as we will see, is also a conditional sentence. And it reads, If our heart condemns us not, then have we confidence toward God. The then there is, is in italics indicating that it's not explicitly in the text, but it's implied in the text. Likewise, there should be an implied then to complete the if sentence in the previous verse. What is the implication? The implication is this. For if our heart condemns us, then we have not confidence toward God. Because God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. And then verse 21. Beloved, if our heart condemns us not, then have we confidence toward God. I don't very often get so technical in my exposition of a text, but I believe it's important that you see that in order to understand what God is saying. The second reason why this second view that I mentioned earlier, I believe, is correct has to do with the vocabulary, not only the grammar, but the vocabulary. Remember also that the word translated condemn in 1 John 3.20 is better translated, as I mentioned last Lord's Day, accuses. For if our heart accuses us, because the Greek word used here is not katakrino, the word that's used for God's condemning wrath, as in Romans 8.34, but rather this word is the word kataganisko, which means blames or accuses. And this word is used only one other time in all of the New Testament, and then there it is found in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. And there it is used in the context of the Apostle Paul confronting Peter with his sin. And the verse says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. 
Not because he was to be condemned with God's condemning wrath and sent to hell, but because he was to be accused. He had sinned. He was a transgressor. And so because of the vocabulary that's used here, it is better to understand this not as the condemnation, the false condemnation of, the con- of our conscience that would say that we belong in hell, but rather the accusation of our conscience accusing us of violating God's law. And so to summarize this, what I've said, this con- in this context, God is not saying something different from our accusing conscience, but rather God is brought into the picture at this point by John in order to support the accusing conscience. To make the accusing conscience even stronger because God stands behind the accusing conscience. Dear ones, if you will not listen to your conscience when it accuses you of sin, think again. Because God is greater than your finite conscience and He cannot be wrong because His knowledge is infinite. This is not a text which teaches you to ignore your conscience, but rather a text which teaches you to take seriously that concerning which your conscience accuses you. And let me just make, before we pass on to the next verse, some application. Concerning what, dear ones, has your conscience accused you? Maybe no one else knows concerning what your conscience has accused you. Maybe you've never told your husband or your wife concerning what your conscience accuses you. And rather than heeding your conscience as the ambassador of God, you have chosen rather to ignore it. You have chosen to perhaps run from it. Perhaps you have chosen to try to bury it in your work and in your pleasure. Dear one, you cannot outrun your conscience if you are a Christian. It's impossible. You cannot quiet the conscience by the noise and the clamoring of a busy life. For at night, there you are, all alone. Just you and your conscience. Can't we see? Don't we have eyes to see, dear ones, the many ill effects of ignoring our conscience, which are simply God's acts of discipline in our lives? For example, a tormented and miserable mind. Dissatisfaction with everything in life, even with the good gifts of God. Bitterness toward the Lord God. 
the loss of enjoyment and communion with Jesus Christ, there is no longer any joy in your salvation. Isolation from Christians. You don't want to be near Christians. You're running from your conscience. You want to be by yourself. Or you want to be with a crowd that will condone your conscience rather than condemn your conscience. The loss of assurance of salvation is another fruit of running from your conscience. And finally, blindness to the truth. Because the more we ignore our conscience, the more blind our conscience becomes. And the more deluded by error we become. Dear child of God, Stop trying to ignore what God has given to you for your good. The pangs of a conscience that justly accuses you of sin are the means God uses to drive you to Himself for relief and healing. Just like God uses pain in the body to drive us to a doctor for help. Jeremiah 8.22, Jeremiah asks this question, Is there no balm? Is there no medicine, no balm, no healing ointment in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Why aren't they healed? It's a good question. Why? Is it because there is no physician? Is it because... Christ cannot forgive and give a clear and clean and pure conscience? No, it's because my people love it so. It's because my people prefer to run, to hide, and to bury their sin deep within. They must realize that they are sick and need a physician for the soul. And that's the purpose of the conscience, to drive us to Christ. The next main point is this, the approving conscience and assurance. In verse 21, wherein we find these words, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. John now presents the flip side to an accusing conscience, and that is an approving conscience, or one which we might call a pure conscience before God. John implies that while we are living in a sinful condition of having an accusing conscience before God, we will not enjoy confidence before God. If in this particular verse having a conscience that does not condemn us brings confidence, then having a conscience that does condemn us brings us not confidence before God. Far from enjoying confidence before God, we will avoid divine appointments that bring us face to face with the Lord Because like Adam and Eve, we are ashamed to look upon him. 
If we live in an accusing conscience, dear ones, we will not keep divine appointments because, or if we do keep divine appointments, it will simply be because of the expectations of others. Others expect us to keep these divine appointments of personal worship or family worship or attending corporate worship. And so I'll just come and go through the motions. Or I may simply do so out of some sense of duty, but certainly not out of a heart of fervency and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. If there is no confidence before God as I approach Him. In such a state, the Lord will not appear to us a gracious Savior, but more as a fearful judge. In verse 21, we find here another conditional sentence, but a state which issues in confidence before God and not shame or fear before the Lord. The reason that there is confidence toward God with this Christian is not because he never ever has an accusing conscience concerning sin. That would be to demand perfection. And we're not talking about a perfect Christian. John makes it very clear in his very first chapter to say that we have no sin or to say that we have not sinned is a lie. And it's to call God a liar. Rather, this is a Christian in verse 21 who when his conscience does accuse him, he straightway heals it by contritely repenting of a sin and fleeing to the grace of Christ for forgiveness. Though he may, in fact, wound his conscience by sin, you see, he begins to train himself, to exercise himself as if he were disciplining his body for the Olympics to avoid continual offense. I read at the conclusion of the sermon last Lord's Day, Acts 24:16, but I want to just again have you turn there. Because this summarizes our duty with regard to our conscience before God and man. Paul is appearing before the tribunal of Felix, having been falsely charged and condemned by the Jews for having violated the law of God, having spoken against God's law. And he stands and he says in verse 15, I have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that is, that the Jews also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. And then in verse 16, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. And I would just note a few things about that verse. 
The Apostle Paul says, I exercise myself. In other words, a pure conscience, dear ones, does not happen in a vacuum, void of our human effort. We must work hard and be diligent in exercising ourselves, in training ourselves to have always a pure conscience. It is the work of God ultimately to give us a pure conscience. Absolutely. It is the work of God's grace in our life. But nevertheless, God's grace causes us to stir up His grace. God's grace in our life causes us to exercise ourselves to have a pure conscience, to desire a pure conscience, to confess our sin, to walk uprightly before the Lord. Notice he says, always to have this kind of conscience. Not simply when we're feeling especially spiritual on the Lord's Day, where we finally clean up all of the mess from the week before. But we seek to always have a clear conscience before the living God. And not only a conscience that's void of offense toward God, but a conscience that is void of offense toward man. For we are to not only love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And to keep God's commandments in both of those tables of the law. If you are not working, if you are not diligently exercising yourself, dear ones, I can guarantee that you will not enjoy a pure conscience before God because this is hard work. This is hard work. And if you are not exercising yourself to have a pure conscience before God, I can also guarantee you that you will not enjoy to the extent that that you should, the assurance of your salvation. How did men like Rutherford and Guthrie, men like Cargill and Cameron and Rennick, face their tormentors and persecutors? How did they stand before these men ready to die, ready to lay down their lives for the truth, if not having a pure conscience before God and before man. You see, Paul said to the, to the Ephesian elders in Miletus that he was clean of the blood. He had preached the gospel. He had proclaimed all God's counsel to them so that now he was cleared of their blood. They were responsible. He had not only proclaimed the truth, he had lived the truth before them. Not sinlessly, but again, when sinning, fleeing to the mercy seat of Christ and not walking with a guilty conscience. One other point before we move on in our text 
I would make about this verse. The Greek word for confidence here, parasia, has the root meaning of openness, of outspokenness, of frankness. And it expresses the very opposite of fear and shame before God. One with a pure conscience before God is one who enjoys an openness or an intimate communion with the living God. You see, the one who has confidence before God is no stranger to the Lord. Nor is the Lord a stranger to him. The one who has confidence and openness before God, the Lord is no enemy to him. He doesn't view the Lord as his enemy, as out to get him. This one who has confidence before the Lord does not view the Lord as some fearful judge from whom he runs and hides. You see, that's the view of Jesus Christ that we see in Roman Catholic theology, where Jesus Christ is presented as a terrible judge from whom the Christian should flee. And who should they flee to whom to, to whom should they flee? If they flee from Christ, to whom should they flee? Well, they should flee to Mary. They should flee to the saints, because they will be compassionate. They will sympathize with them because Christ is so harsh. Christ is so austere. Christ is unapproachable. He is an awesome judge. And the reason that they are drawn to those conclusions is because they do not entertain a biblical view of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and his mediatorial work upon the cross. That the work of salvation, dear ones, is finished. Our Savior has redeemed us. And He is our advocate. An advocate, John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate means one who comes alongside with. And here's the picture. When we sin, we have an advocate who takes his arm and throws his arm around our shoulder and walks alongside of us to the very presence of God and pleads his own righteousness on our behalf. Who does not plead that we are innocent. Yes, we are guilty of sin and that's the purpose for accusing conscience. But our advocate pleads his own righteousness. And we need never fear him with a slavish fear to run from him. We must always fear the living God because he is the eternal God. And not with a slavish fear once we are the children of God. How do you enjoy, dear ones, that communion with Jesus Christ? Do you enjoy it by exercising yourself to have always a pure conscience before God? That's how we should 
enjoy that communion with Christ. Last point. The benefit of a pure conscience. In verses 22 through 24. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. The benefit of a pure conscience, dear ones, that is mentioned here, is confidence in prayer. Confidence in the presence of God when you approach Him in prayer. When one has a pure conscience, he has confidence before the Lord in prayer. For John says, concerning this confidence we have before him in prayer, and whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is not a blank for any request, whether good or evil, that we have confidence that God will hear any request, right or wrong, that we offer. That God will answer any prayer that we offer to Him. You see, the assumption here is that a pure conscience before God and man issues in a knowledge of God's will. It issues in a desire to be obedient to His commandments. A pure conscience means that we are seeking to be holy and obey His Word. We are bringing our desires, our aspirations, our dreams, our thoughts, our goals, our plans into conformity to His revealed will, which are His commandments. And so again, when we approach God, we can have confidence that He will hear us because of this pure conscience. And this pure conscience, again, is the result of obedience to the commandments of Christ. It's interesting that all of the commandments of God in verse 23 are summarized for us under two categories. Faith in Jesus Christ and love for one another. Jesus summarized all of God's commandments under two heads to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. To believe in Jesus Christ 
summarizes commandments one through four. We have, dear ones, a duty to believe in Christ and all that Christ has revealed to us. To love Him and all that He has revealed to us. And we have a duty, as summarized in the second table commandments, commandments five through ten, to love our neighbor as ourself. Here again, John keeps coming back, coming back, coming back. You see it time and time again. Not to some mystical experience as a grounds for salvation. He keeps coming back and again and again to the objective standard of God's revealed will as being the grounds for our salvation or the grounds of our assurance of salvation. And finally, in verse 24, John says that he and he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. And I simply want to say we'll have other opportunities because this issue of the testimony of the Spirit will come up again, so we'll devote much more time to it later. John concludes by bringing in this third evidence for the assurance of our salvation, which is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. The testimony of the Spirit does not refer to an audible voice of God speaking from heaven. It does not refer to some miraculous demonstration of power such as speaking in tongues or healing or prophetic visions. The testimony of the Holy Spirit, our confession of faith says, comes by means of ordinary means, by the Word of God, by prayer, by feasting upon His word and commandments. The testimony of the Holy Spirit, dear ones, refers to that divine witness of God within our conscience whereby we know that we know that He lives and abides within us and that we are the children of God. Confirming witness by God, pointing to these other evidences that confirm that they are true in our life. And therefore we belong to Him and therefore the Spirit abides within us. I close with a stirring reminder from Pastor Rutherford from the same work that I referred to earlier. Before I begin the quote, he does refer to Psalm 37.7 without quoting it in this text. And so let me begin by reading Psalm 37.37. Psalm 37.37, which says, Mark the perfect man and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. Now, Rutherford's words. David, in Psalm 37, 
37, desires that we should observe. And we shall find that the upright man shall have peace at last, which follows the warfare of this life and brings glory and immortality with unwithering crowns. Yet there be many so foolish to get the first peace that they lose the second. Saul would have peace with men, but lost his peace with God himself and his crown. The Jews refused peace with Jesus Christ to have peace with the Romans. And when they had killed Jesus Christ, they lost their peace both with God and the Romans. Look back to former times, and it shall appear that it never went well with them who to please men offended God, or for the faults of men would discord with God. The way of impiety never had, nor shall have, good success so that there is no delight except the delight of a good conscience. What peace, dear ones, are you exchanging today? What peace with men are you exchanging for that peace with God? What peace are you willing to sacrifice for that peace of a pure conscience before God? I pray there is nothing in this life that you are willing to sacrifice for that. It is one of the greatest treasures that God gives a pure conscience before God. And if you would die without regrets, if you would die without fears, if you would die without torment of conscience, then now, children, young people, adults, now begin to exercise yourself to have always a pure conscience before God and man. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do come before Thee, pleading with Thee to give to us a broken and contrite heart. For Lord, we have walked many days, perhaps weeks and months, with a wounded and offended conscience before Thee. And we have chosen to live in anguish and torment. We have chosen to, to be blinded and calloused. We have chosen to become strangers to Thee because we refused to listen to an accusing conscience. O oh Lord our God, what a great treasure and a blessed gift is our conscience. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that Thou would cause us 
to love and appreciate this gift. To not ignore it and dismiss it. But to seek when it but to see that when it is rightly instructed that it is thy ambassador and that thou dost stand behind that conscience. O Father, use our accusing conscience to drive us to Jesus Christ to find mercy and grace so that we might live in fellowship and communion with Thee. We ask our Father that Thou would bless each and every person who hears this sermon today. O Lord, we pray that Thou would arouse us, that Thou would stir us up, Father, to love and good deeds, to stir up the grace of God in our lives, to not, not allow that grace to go out. O Father, it is no wonder that we suffer so much in our conscience. It is no wonder, Father, that we have so little assurance of salvation, for we do not exercise ourselves. We are very weak and flabby in this whole area. But God, this day, stir us up and cause us, drive us, Lord, to be faithful in this area. To the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.